The UC Wellbeing Channel, your portal to a balanced body and mind. Continue your journey at uctv.tv slash wellbeing. Welcome, everyone, to UC Global Health Day 2018. Commi- <laughs> and our theme of Committing to a Healthier World, brought to you by the UC Global Health Institute and UC San Diego. I'm Tom Chordosh, Professor of Anthropology and Director of the Global Health Program, as well as Co-Director of the UC San Diego Global Health Institute here on campus. And on behalf of the system-wide UC Global Health Institute, I'm the Program Chair for UC Global Health Day 2018. The Global Health Day is UCGHI's annual flagship event. This year, UC San Diego has the distinct honor of hosting this system-wide conference. Our theme, Committing to a Healthier World, reflects our collective commitment to addressing challenges that threaten human health as well as the health of animals and ecosystems. It reaffirms our commitment to health equity and equitable access to health care for all global citizens. We're excited for you to join us for the day in learning about all the collaborative efforts across the UC system in addressing some of the world's most pressing global health challenges. And right from the top, I want to make a special thanks to the logistics team that has brought this very complicated and very large event into being. And that is Catherine Lee, Melody Huang, and Vanessa Gibson from the UCGHI side, and Brittany Wright from here on the UC San Diego side. And now I would like to um, welcome our UC San Diego Chancellor Pradeep Kosla to deliver some opening m- remarks. Chancellor Kosla is an internationally renowned electrical and computer engineer. Since coming here six years ago, he's been leading the university through a period of dramatic growth and expansion in global reach. Chancellor Kosla has continuously supported global health efforts on campus through the UC San Diego Global Health Institute and with his fellow chancellors, the system-wide UC Global Health Institute. He would like to welcome you um, all here today, and we are very pleased to have Chancellor Pradeep Kosla with us. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. All right, and welcome. Uh, welcome to UC San Diego. I apologize for my voice. It's not how I sound usually, and it's not because I just woke up. I woke up like four hours ago. Uh, <laughs> it's just bad allergies. I don't know what happened. Uh, but anyway, uh, Tom, where's Tom? Where was he? He's just, oh, there he is. So please join me in thanking Tom for putting on a great show. I know he, uh, uh, he, he thanked everybody else, but uh, somebody has to thank him too, because without him it won't happen. Uh, so what I want to do is, uh, instead of just giving you a single word welcome, say a little bit about uh, global health at UC San Diego uh, and how we see it and why it's so significant for our campus. Uh, So about six years ago when we were creating a strategic plan, uh, there were two 
uh, there were four thematic areas that were identified, but the two that uh, have a, d a direct bearing on global health, uh, one was understanding cultures and addressing disparities. If you look at the world around you, the two most significant form of disparities, whether it's the U.S. or India or Africa, I think are access to education and access to health. Uh, and I think it is incumbent upon a public university, especially the UC in California, to really be addressing these issues in a very significant way. So this was part of our strategic plan. So this is about six years ago. And then I realized that uh, the UC itself was more visionary than we were out here, and they already had a global health institute uh, that we were a part of, led by our very own uh, Dr. Stephanie Strathy. Stephanie, thank you very much. She was our representative at the, on the UC Global Health Institute uh, board. So you put the two together now, and we decided that there should be a global health institute here, again, led by uh, Dr. Strathy, and it has done extremely well. From that global health institute, was formed the partnership with uh, Dr. Tom Chordas, uh, and this got formed in the Department of Anthropology of all places. And it's only UC San Diego that can do it, by the way, uh, have global health. And I'm telling you, like, the first time this was presented to me, I was questioning Tom. I said, why anthropology? Like, why not biology, or why not medicine, or why not anywhere else? And I can tell you, they had the most convincing arguments, uh, primarily aimed at multidisciplinary research and how, sitting in social sciences, this was going to have a very significant impact. And I can tell you, like, five years later, it really has had a very significant impact. We have one of the largest cross-border programs, again, led by Global Health, uh, between uh, San Diego, the border of San Diego and Tijuana, or the U.S. and Mexico border, uh, one of the most significant programs in the country. And it has gotten us a lot of uh, laurels, if I may say so, and a lot of visibility, but most importantly to me, a lot of good work that has changed the way we think about communities around San Diego, the way we think about immigrants, the way we think about health access, and the way, and the way we want to be viewed by this community around us. So our Institute of Global Health, which clearly is an instance of the UC Institute of Global Health, has had a very big impact on UC San Diego. Let me just say one more thing. Uh, the worst nightmare, the biggest problem for a chancellor right now, or any uh, university leader right now, is mental health. Mental health issues on campuses are growing exponentially. I mean, it is unbelievable what you see on a campus. And you wonder, and you say, you know, wait a second, this is only happening on our campus. You go outside, you realize this is happening all over the world. Mental health, I think, is one of the most uh, significant issues of current times, and also the most overlooked up to now, and also the most underinvested up to now, especially when it comes to cancer. Mental health at the same time can be extremely debilitating. So we at UC San Diego have made a very conscious commitment to invest a lot of time and resources on building our ability to address mental health, uh, both at a medical level and on public policy level. And again, this Institute for Global Health has been a leader. So. You can see where the trajectory is going. This is a very significant institute for us. Uh, 
and I'm really glad that the UC Institute is actually the umbrella that is showing the way. And this umbrella, I think, puts UC in a very good light compared to other public institutions. So I want to congratulate the UC Global Health Institute at the UC level. I want to congratulate the UC San Diego version of it. And I want to thank you all for being here. Enjoy your day. Today is going to be a beautiful day, not just intellectually, but also outside. So I can tell you, for all the 10 campuses, this is the best located. So welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pradeep. We really appreciate your support. I just want to make a, a, a brief recognition also of Dr. James Chan, who has been a generous benefactor of uh, global health and um, helped us uh, a great deal in expanding our, our programs here. <laughs> Next, I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Tom Coates, who is the director of the system-wide UC Global Health Institute. Um, and he's also um, at UCLA, director of the Center for World Health. Tom, welcome to the stage. Thank you, Tom, and thank you, Chancellor Kosala, for your um, warm embrace of global health, the resonating the theme that the local is global. Every problem that exists around the world exists in our state here and in our communities. I was watching TV this morning, and there was a news story about children who get food at school during the week, but then don't have enough food to last them over the weekend. And it's an incredible charity, and I think that's the kind of challenge we face. You also hit the nail on the head, and that is the University of California, of course, we're all very proud of the University of California, both because of its breadth and because of its depth. And when we link together, we have incredible strength and ability to do amazing things in every field, but especially in global health. But we also, it's essential that each campus have a strong global health program that really takes advantage of the unique capacities, skills, talents, um, uh, approaches that those campuses have. So thank you very much. So this is an amazing day. This is the largest Global Health Day that we've ever had. We had more than 500 registrants. UCLA rented a bus and brought a group of students down here. They wanted to rent a second bus, and we were told, no, not enough room. And I asked Tom earlier, I said, so what's the ticket price going on StubHub now? So it's a... But I think the other major accomplishment of the day is that we have representatives from every campus. So who's here from Berkeley? All right. Go Bears. Who's here from Davis? I know there's a Davis table over here. Others from Davis? Okay. Go Aggies. Who's here from Irvine? All right. Go Anteaters. Who's here from L.A.? <laughs> Go Bruins. <laughs> Merced. All right, all right. Riverside. We have some Riverside. Okay, go Highlanders. Um, uh, San Francisco. <laughs> Whoa, okay. You're also the Bears. <laughs> uh, Santa Barbara. All right, sounds good. Santa Cruz. Go Slugs. Yeah. 
<laughs> and from UC San Diego. <laughs> and San Diego State. Yes? Okay. All right. <laughs> Any from USC? Oh, I was going to say fight on, you know, but oh well. Or go Trojans. You know, if you work in HIV, you say go Trojans. But anyway. Um, and we have a very special delegation here from the Eduardo Mandlane Medical School in Maputo, Mozambique. Who's from Mozambique? Thank you. We have a special relationship with that medical school and a whole delegation of faculty and residents are here and they're going to be spending a week at UCLA. So thank you to the team here for bringing us all together. Our togetherness, our collaboration is our strength. And with that strength, we can make a difference in the world. The chancellor spoke of disparity and a lot of global health is about human rights, about reducing disparity, bringing the benefits that all of us can to the world and saving our planet. Thank you for spending your day here, and it's going to be a terrific day. Thanks to the San Diego team for hosting us and putting together a wonderful program. Thank you. And now it's my distinct honor to introduce our keynote speaker for, the, for today, who is Vikram Patel, the Pershing Square Professor of Global Health in the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine at Harvard Medical School adjunct professor and joint director of the Center for Chronic Conditions and Injuries at the Public Health Foundation of India, honorary professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where he co-founded the Center for Global Mental Health in 2008. Dr. Patel has conducted groundbreaking epidemiological research that revealed the burden of mental disorders in low- and middle-income nations and showed a strong link between mental disorders and poverty. He also works in the areas of child development and adolescent health. He's an accomplished psychiatrist and a highly honored researcher and an advocate for the roughly 450 million people in the world affected by mental illness. He was listed in Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential Persons of the Year in 2015. As Time Magazine said, he provides hope that mental illness and trauma make us neither weak nor unworthy of love and respect. Vikram's presence with us today helps us draw attention to the global challenge and global burden of mental illness, because to paraphrase him, when it comes to mental health, we're all developing countries. Vikram. Uh, thank you very much to Tom and to all the organizers of this event for the uh, the real privilege uh, and the opportunity to speak to all of you this morning. It's incredible to see how much interest and passion there is for the subject of global health, which is a discipline that didn't even exist about a decade ago. Uh, I think uh, many of you were probably too young to remember in those days, we used to call it international health. Um, and even before that, the uh, institution that I work for uh, is an exemplar. We used to call it tropical medicine. 
in fact, uh, the institution that I left to join Harvard last year, uh, on the walls of the building, it has a mural of the things that it counted as being relevant to the subject of tropical medicine, and they consisted almost entirely of insects and bugs. Uh, obviously, I can tell you bugs can give you very poor mental health, especially if you have to sleep with mosquitoes the whole night. But, um, but it was very obvious that the definition of tropical medicine did not include mental health problems. Um, and the definition of international health was very much a parochial, patronizing idea that it was problems that affected poor people in other parts of the world. And therefore, mental health problems still did not register because, of course, mental health problems affect poor people everywhere. Uh, and now we have the discipline of global health, which I think is the true successor of health seen from a perspective through the prism of justice everywhere. So friends, my talk today is about a subject that I have been very passionately involved with for two and a half decades, mostly living and working in India. But it seems to me that this is perhaps the single most important and potentially the most complex health challenge of our times. As we heard from Chancellor Kosla, this is a subject that affects each and every one of us personally. I'm absolutely certain that there isn't a single individual in this room who can confidently say that there isn't a mental health issue that's either affected themselves or people loved to them in their innermost networks. But it also therefore affects every single society in the world. And it's going to require collective action, as I will turn to later on in my talk, if we're going to address this complex challenge together. I'm going to start by just displaying a series of recent news stories that come from my new adopted home, this country, the U.S., as well as my own home, which is in India, to illustrate how mental health influences and pervades every aspect of our lives, not always in an explicit way, but it is there all the time. Let me start with this incredible story that I have to say, for an outsider coming to this country, I was astonished to read about. Most people in the world are unaware that actually a mental health problem is now the leading cause of death in young Americans. Just pause for a moment and think about that. Opioid overdose now kills more young adult Americans than any other single cause of death. Not only is, of course, opioid dependence a mental health problem, but the very origins of being prescribed opioids in the first place was often due to despair, which, of course, is a mental health problem in and of itself. Now, this is not only true of this country, peculiarly Another country which has been, as I read the newspapers here, very closely associated with the U.S., but for completely different reasons, also is seeing an epidemic of mortality due to another mental health problem. That's, of course, Russia. Russia has, over the last decade, seen an epidemic of the death of young men, so much so that it is one of the few countries, along with the U.S., where life expectancy has actually plateaued or started falling this is astonishing. Every country in the world except the U.S. and Russia are seeing rises in life expectancy. In both these countries, addictions are the leading cause of death and, of course, suicide associated with that. Of course, youth suicide is another major epidemic, not just in the U.S., but globally. In South Asia today, more young people will die at their own hands than due to any other single cause of death. 
Suicide kills more young people in China, in Vietnam, in India, in Pakistan, in Nepal, in the whole swathe of South and East Asia than any disease entity does. And of course, there are very vulnerable groups in every population. Uh, farmers, I, I think we would all agree, are often seen as the heart and soul of every nation. This country is coming to terms with one of the most severe suicide epidemics affecting farmers, but this is not only true of this country. My country also is seeing, in fact, an amazing swathe of suicides across the heartland of India. So much so that in India today, entire elections are being fought and won on the issue of farmer suicide. I cannot recall a time when a public health issue became the single most important agenda point for politicians. And then, of course, when I first arrived in Cambridge in, in Massachusetts, I discovered another pernicious example of how mental disorder interfaces with social disadvantage. I was put in an apartment by Harvard University in an area of Cambridge which I had asked for because it was very convenient. I didn't have a car. I needed to actually get the, uh, the Longwood Medical Area, which involved taking a Harvard shuttle. So they put me kindly in a place called Central Square. I don't know how many of you uh, know this area of Cambridge. But anyway, it's an area which is right next to a Salvation Army home. Um, and for me, as a psychiatrist, I least expected to see mental illness every morning and evening when I left and returned to my apartment because people with serious mental illness basically slept around the entrance of the apartment block uh, that I actually was inhabiting for a few months. Of course, you can go to any urban settlement anywhere in the world including in this country, and see the most common detritus of society in the form of people abandoned because of their mental illness onto the streets. Friends, these are just a collection of stories. But if I had to now turn, as you're all global health students, um, to some of the hard evidence about the burden of mental disorders, it suffices to say from this slide that comes from the global burden of disease that over the last 25 years since the burden of disease metrics have been reported in the form of DALIs, that there has been a rise in the burden of disease in all countries of the world. On this slide, you can see countries of the world divided according to, categorized according to their development status. And as you can see, in all countries of the world, there, are, there has been a rise uh, in the overall burden of mental and substance use disorders. Now, of course, not surprisingly, the richest countries in the world, such as U.S., have a much higher line, but that's only because some of the other health problems that afflict uh, poorer countries like HIV, AIDS, and maternal health problems are less common. What's important is that the proportionate rise is the greatest in the poorest countries of the world, which is represented by this blue line, where the overall increase in the burden has been 40% in the last 25 years. Now, some of you may wonder what accounts for this incredible proportionate increase. Well, there are two reasons. The first reason, of course, is that we've become much better in controlling some of the other problems, uh, health problems that afflict those countries like HIV AIDS, and maternal health problems. So, therefore, the relative share of mental and substance use disorders has increased. But there are two other reasons that cause the increase in both rich and poor countries, and that is to do with population dynamics. Across the developing world, one of the most important population dynamics is the movement of populations from childhood into adolescence. And in the richer world, there is a similar movement from adults into old age. Now, for those of you who are aware about neurodevelopment, you will know that these are developmentally the most sensitive periods in our life 
to do with changes that are happening in our brains. This is why most mental disorders begin in adolescence, as you can see on this slide. Here you can see the peak of mental and substance use disorders in the ages of between 14 and 40. And this is, of course, precisely the demographic dividend, but also the age group which is growing most rapidly across sub-Saharan Africa and many parts of Asia. And at the other end of the age range, you will see this peak. These are red lines which reflect neurodegenerative disorders, particularly dementias. And you can see, therefore, a bimodal peak of the burden of mental and substance use disorders, one in young adulthood and the second in old age. And the world is going through two different sets of transitions that will mean a rising tide of these conditions in the future. One of the things that we appreciate far less, I mean, the, the metric of DALI is a rather abstract one. It combines two different kinds of disease burden. The number of years you live with the disease and suffer disability and the number of years you've lost in life because the disease killed you prematurely. And it's true to say that mental disorders, the contribution they make to mortality has been historically underestimated. It's, this is the number of deaths estimated in the latest version of the global burden of disease that are directly attributable to mental disorders. You can see it's less than a million. That's quite a small number, relatively speaking. However, the same group has now recently carried out an estimation of the excess deaths that would occur in people, for example, with drinking problems or depression, and come up with this astronomical figure of nearly 14 million additional deaths that would occur each year because a person has a mental illness. The classic reasons for this are suicide, which ironically, is not counted in cause-specific deaths, uh, as well as heart disease and injuries, injuries mainly in association with substance use disorders. So I want to really turn from this point really to the positive side. We have this incredible knowledge. It's been around for nearly two decades. What's really exciting is that we also have solutions for them. Now, much of my talk is going to focus on treatment and care uh, because that is the context for my lecture today, universal health coverage. Uh, but we also have a very large body of evidence on prevention, and perhaps we might go into that in the discussion. So here are the solutions uh, summarized in this guideline of the World Health Organization called MHGAP. Now, it's important to remember, MHGAP is simply a synthesis of clinical interventions. It doesn't tell you very much about how these should be delivered in real-world settings. All it tells you is what should be delivered in terms of drugs, psychological, and social interventions, as, I, as you can see, for a full range of mental, neurological, and substance use disorders. Now, uh, last week, I was giving um, the Paul Myerson lecture at Tufts uh, uh, University, and um, some of the uh, students who were in the lecture hall asked me in the Q&A, isn't epilepsy really not a, it's not a really a mental disorder? Of course it isn't. It's a, a neurological disorder if you worked in a big hospital. But I think the WHO was very wise. It recognized that it didn't really matter whether specialists in hospitals refer to themselves as psychiatrists, neurologists, or addiction specialists, because in the real world, in most parts of the world, none of these specialists existed anyway. And so it didn't matter which condition you had that affected your brain or mind, you had no care available. So they really lumped all of these together into one set of guidelines and explicitly targeted these guidelines to uh, people working in the, at the coalface, in primary and secondary care uh, globally. Now, we not only have clinical 
interventions for these conditions, but perhaps the most exciting evidence in my mind that comes from the field of global health, global mental health in particular, over the last decade, is evidence on how to deliver these interventions even in places where there are no mental health professionals, leave aside even mental health professionals, where there might not even be any physicians of any description. Over the last few years, colleagues of mine have been putting together systematic reviews. Now, as you know, systematic reviews are a collection of primary studies. And here is just a set of a few of those systematic reviews shown, the covers of these articles. But if I had to lump all these together, we would be talking about a total of more than 100 randomized controlled trials from more than 50 countries around the world. This, in my mind, represents potentially the largest evidence base in global health delivery in any area of global health. And over the next few slides, I am going to present to you some of the key lessons that this very large body of evidence, as I see it, uh, teaches us about how we should be delivering mental health care. The innovators in all these different experiments have sought to address three different gaps. I describe them as the human resource gap, the access gap or the treatment gap, and something which I call provocatively the credibility gap. But before I describe to you the specific innovations themselves, I want to address something which 25 years ago when I finished training first in psychiatry and then in medical anthropology and set out to work in, uh, uh, in sub-Saharan Africa and Zimbabwe where I lived for three years, I was very heavily influenced by uh, the idea that people were fundamentally different in different parts of the world. This was, this was a very prevalent idea then, perhaps less so now, particularly in the area of mental health. And so there was a notion, and actually this was my PhD hypothesis, uh, was that people in Zimbabwe, uh, uh, really the, 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 the concept of depression, as described in Western psychiatry, simply did not travel uh, to other parts of the world. And I was about to prove that was the case. Well, as you can see from my lecture two and a half decades later, uh, that I have come to a very different conclusion. And I think that conclusion is also borne out by the hundreds of different research studies that have been carried out in completely diverse contexts and settings with completely diverse cultural and social groups. And that is what I want to really summarize in this slide. The first is that the theoretical frameworks of psychosocial interventions are similar across cultures. In spite of very extensive ethnographic uh, work that went into trying to understand what should be the mechanism of these interventions in different cultures, how did cultural beliefs, etc., affect the content and the theory of the intervention, it turns out that actually there was very little difference on whether you were in this country or this culture or that one in terms of what would actually help you recover from emotional problems. And I've come to the conclusion, based on this knowledge, that psychological suffering is just as universal a human experience as physical suffering. If I slap a child in India, he or she will feel not just the pinch of the pain from the skin, but will also feel the hurt and the terror and the fright just as much as if I slap a child here in the U.S. And secondly, and this is perhaps the most important lesson for me that I take away, it's not so much about culture that differentiates how we design and deliver health care, and specifically mental health care. It's about social class. And one of the interesting lessons that I've drawn from this large body of evidence is how similar 
the design adaptations have been when people have tried to deliver, for example, psychological therapies for depression amongst African Americans in the U.S. or amongst Asian British people in Britain, as they are for people in poorer rural and remote settings of India or sub-Saharan Africa. It turns out it isn't so much about your culture that really matters, but really about how rich or poor you are and how easy it is for you to access services. Those social stratifiers are perhaps the far more potent definers of how mental health care interventions should be delivered. And that kid in this room is going to be one great global health uh, uh, academic. It's a, uh, it, I always say it's never too early to start in global health, and, and I congratulate UCSD for recruiting so early on, but that's wonderful. <laughs> I, should, I should take that back to Harvard. Anyway, so um, the three gaps, if you remember, the human resource gap, just to give you a sense of what the human resource gap is, there are more mental health professionals in New York City than the whole of Africa. And that will give you a sense of the kind of gaps we're talking about here. It's very clear that in order to deliver interventions in most of the world, I would argue including here in the U.S., uh, we have to have imaginative alternatives. Many of you will have come across ideas of using community health workers, but also the incredible new ideas about using digital platforms for support, for training, and for supervision. And I think the really exciting area of work in which psychological treatments are being broken down into smaller, simpler ingredients, as it were, what we call the common elements approach. So these are more easy to teach, more easy to learn, and more easy to practice and master. The treatment gap or the access gap is about where we deliver services. And apart from digital delivery, which of course is a new innovation, still requires a lot of work, but nevertheless something that I think has a lot of prospect attached to it, the other more old-fashioned innovation is delivering the interventions where people live rather than where professionals work. I think that's quite interesting. It sounds very simple, but actually it's quite dramatic and radical. And I think one of the first champions of this approach was the HIV and TB field. Perhaps the most exciting innovation to come from TB isn't some new medicine, isn't some new diagnostic kit based on genomic analyses, but it's actually the fact that there's a guy on a bicycle who comes to your house and watches you take your medicine, because that was actually the single biggest obstacle to good outcomes, was that people didn't take their pills, and therefore multi-drug resistance TB emerged. And one could imagine that the same sorts of ideas, that is to say to make it easier for people to adhere with their interventions, should be something that is so relevant uh, in the mental health care field. A lot of my work, for example, psychological therapies are delivered at home. And the third gap, which I said you know, is, is very provocative, is the gap of the credibility gap. And that is a gap that refers to the gap between the way psychiatry and clinical psychology have conceptualized human suffering to do with mental health and the way most communities view mental health problems. For example, very few people on this planet view depression in the way that biomedical practitioners view it. Most people see depression, for example, as an extension of social suffering. Most people see it as very much part of their lives. And to medicalize this experience often means to alienate and to lose that particular individual from the care system. Another example would be that most people do actually have resources. Not all, but most people do, either personal or resources within their inner networks. And most biomedical approaches tend to patronize and, in fact, disempower people from being able to harness and access those resources, which ultimately lead to much better long-term outcomes. And finally, another good example are the social determinants that typically accompany most mental health problems. Clinical interventions 
in the biomedical framing, leave that for someone else to deal with. But the truth of the matter is there is no someone else to deal with most of those problems in most places. One cannot deliver mental health care without also concomitantly addressing the social determinants of mental health. This is a delivery model that was developed actually in the West Coast in in Washington State uh, and is the most widely adopted and perhaps the most sensible way to integrate mental health care in routine health care platforms. A key element of this is the case manager. Many of you working in primary care will recognize this person. Uh, In the developing world, this case manager typically is a layperson, a lay health worker or a community health worker. Now, when I give this talk to mental health professional audiences, they feel that what we're really advocating here is a dumbing down of mental health care or even a wholesale replacement of the mental health specialists with these frontline workers. This is not true at all. Because every community health worker program always, the success of every program always relies on the full engagement uh, of the health system. And these are the sorts of roles that I often advocate to my colleagues in in psychiatry and clinical psychology, that these are the sorts of roles that we, as highly qualified specialists, should be playing. We should be innovating, designing new ways of reaching out into the population. We should be supervising, enabling community health workers. We should be championing the rights of people with mental illness and evaluating these programs. This sort of evidence is potentially transformative. My colleague Dan Chisholm, uh, who now heads the Euro WHO zone, uh, uh, he carried out these analyses a couple of years ago, which showed that the investment in these star-sharing-based models of mental health care produced a return of investment, which you can see at the bottom here, uh, on the bottom right-hand side, of five is to one. Now, I have to say I'm not an economist, and those of you who are going to ask me how he calculates this, I have no idea. It's a bit like the global burden of disease sausage machine. Lots of things go in. Something really neat like this comes out, uh, and it's really, really helpful for me to use it as an advocacy point. <laughs> Nevertheless, what this evidence shows is that investing in mental health is a really good idea. And it is also helping us completely redefine our understanding of mental health care. What comprises a mental health intervention? This is not just about giving someone a pill or a psychological therapy. It's about addressing the whole of the person, where it is delivered, who provides the intervention, and how it is delivered. This exciting evidence base is transforming the place of mental health and global health. The Lancet, one of the world's leading journals of the field, which rarely ever really championed mental health, for the last decade has made it one of its core issues to support. The Disease Control Priorities Program of the World Bank has also been uh, released these recommendations for scaling up of mental health care. There are now manuals such as my own, which is translating this evidence into clinical treatment guidelines and skills-building manuals uh, for community health workers. And the World Health Organization's Mental Health Action Plan, a rare, rare opportunity when both Cuba and the U.S. both agreed on something at the World Health Assembly, uh, was actually completed a few years ago and ratified by all nations. So I want to finish by actually taking a bit of a reality check. In spite of all this knowledge, how well are we actually putting it into practice? Well, let me start by first showing you a really dismal figure here. And that is, how many people with a mood, anxiety, or an alcohol use disorder actually receive minimally effective treatment globally. The first set of figures I want to show you here uh, are those in the poorest countries of the world. This figure, these estimates show us 
that more than 95% of people with these conditions do not receive treatment. This is probably the largest gap in access to care for any health condition anywhere in the world. But what is more surprising to me is this figure, which comes from the richest countries of the world. The richest countries of the world, which have a thousand times more resources for mental health care than the poorest countries of the world, don't do that well either. Even in the richest countries of the world, probably 60 to 70% of people do not receive minimally effective therapy. To me, that tells us something quite important. It isn't just about how many dollars or how many specialists you have. It's about the very concept of mental health care that needs to be reframed. The consequence, of course, of this lack of treatment access is enormous economic loss. $16 trillion, according to the World Economic Forum report from a few years ago, will be lost between the years 2010 and 2030 due to untreated mental illness. $16 trillion. But it's much worse than this if you're in a developing country. Because when you access care in a developing country, not only is the access of care poor, but when you get care, it is of an appalling standard. This image or collation of four images shows you mental hospitals from four different countries. Serbia, India, Indonesia, and Chad. These are hospitals, friends. These are not hellhole in the form of prisons, but these are actually hospitals in which people with mental health problems are abandoned. It is a situation that my colleague Arthur Kleinman has described as a fundamental failure of humanity. Now, lest you think that these sorts of abuses of people's rights to dignity and freedom just because they have a mental illness uh, are true only of developing countries, think again. This particular uh, uh, slide I actually got from the Treatment Advocacy Center, and again, it's one of my processes of discovery in my new home. Um, It was astonishing, this fact. Um, In fact, then I did a little bit more homework, and I started looking at these data, and I just saw a U.S. Department of Judiciary report from last month that reported that about 400,000 individuals with serious mental disorder currently live in U.S. prisons, which is about, I believe, double the number in state mental hospitals. So it is true, the prison has become now the leading mental health care institution in this country. And of course, living in prisons is a hellish, hellish experience, as a Guardian expose from two weeks ago told us. And I lit some further inquiries into the story of this hellish experience, and I came across this horrifying story from the New Yorker from a couple of years ago, which actually described gratuitous torture of people with mental illness by prison guards. Just pause for a moment and think about this. That we live in a country with such incredible resources and we allow people whose only fault is that they suffer from an illness to be incarcerated and tortured in the prison system. Now, it's not surprising that this is a, this is a crisis which is truly global because if you look at this slide, it tells you how much countries are spending on mental health care as a fraction of the proportion of the burden of disease. And you can see the countries of the world organized into four groups according to how rich or poor they are. And what you can really see is that no matter how big the burden is of these conditions, which is shown by the 
right-hand side bar, these are the burden as represented by DALIs or years lived with disability, the proportion that each country spends as a total fraction, as a fraction of the total healthcare budget is always much less. It's a disproportionately low spending. And on this slide, you can also see that represented in a slightly different way, which is a fraction of uh, the funding that is given in terms of dollars per the burden of DALIs due to mental disorders uh, by rich countries in the form of development assistance to the poorest countries of the world. So you can see very high bars for HIV, malaria, TB uh, in terms of development assistance dollars per DALI. Uh, and for those of you who think, I'm going to press a mouse click and, and you'll see the bars appear for uh, NCDs and mental disorders. Well, I'm sorry, there is no click because actually that is how much money the rich world gives the poorest world for these groups of conditions. So I want to end by thinking about what we need to do because clearly science alone isn't going to change things. Uh, it's very obvious that science is not going to change this. Uh, we've done as much as I think we can with science, and I think the important thing is how do we, as global health practitioners, step out of the university, step out of our comfort zones, and actually begin to take this knowledge and ensure that it is put into practice. And to do that, this is what I'm doing. First and foremost, engaging two very particular communities. First is those who have been directly affected by mental disorders, what I call people with a lived experience of mental disorder, just as we did with HIV-AIDS uh, about 20 years ago to transform the discourse of HIV-AIDS from a clinical medical issue to something that became a human rights issue. And the second important community, and that speaks to many of you here today, is young people. Earlier, Chancellor Kosla told us about the epidemic of mental health problems affect, afflicting American campuses. This is true of Harvard as well. My president, President Faust, has actually, in the last few months uh, of her tenureship, announced a major new investment for improving mental health care uh, in Harvard. And this is not surprising. As I showed you in my second slide, this is not surprising because this is the age group when the surge of the incidence of mental disorders happens. And it is young people today, as we saw in D.C. on the gun violence issue, who I believe can truly affect a change in the way we address these problems. The second, of course, is engaging political and business leaders, especially if you consider the massive economic consequences of mental disorders. And I, I still do believe, of course, that we do have more on the science agenda. Of course, I'm an academic. Uh, that's, uh, that's my bread and butter. But I do think our academic agenda has now got to shift towards two different broad areas. I haven't spoken much about prevention, as I said earlier, but there really is a very exciting prevention science agenda. And the second is the implementation science agenda that is no longer showing how to deliver these interventions, but more importantly, how can we take them to scale? Scale on a really massive scale at the level, for example, of entire populations or countries. I believe that the stars are aligned very well right now for such action to happen in this field. I believe, in fact, that we are on an inflection point for mental health today as we were with HIV-AIDS in 2000. And this is why I believe that. Firstly, the World Bank, a couple of years ago, hosted a major event, some of you were present there, in which, along with the World Health Organization, declared mental health not just as a global health priority, but as a global development priority. And the last time they did that was, in fact, with NCDs and before that with HIV-AIDS. And you can see the momentous actions that are happening in both of these areas. Indeed, with the NCDs, the World Health Organization earlier this year appointed an independent high-level commission on NCDs on which I serve, and which, for the first time, has included mental health problems alongside the NCDs. This is another very major development. 
And for the first time, people with a lived experience of mental health problems across the world are organizing themselves under the banner of the Movement for Global Mental Health, which this year launched a peer network for people with mental health problems to advocate and support each other. What's really important about the movement is that it's led by people with a lived experience. In fact, the current leader is a remarkable South African woman who has lived with schizophrenia. Not the easiest condition to actually uh, you, uh, to, to suffer from in terms of being able to, uh, to, to stand your ground and articulate uh, on a human rights perspective, uh, but she's lived with this uh, illness since the age of 18. But perhaps the most important opportunity is the SDGs. I'm sure all of you will have heard of the Sustainable Development Goals. This is, of course, the new development uh, instrument for humanity that all the countries of the world agreed. And for the first time, the SDGs now incorporate mental health in specific targets, 3.4 and 3.5, on prevention and promotion, but also in the inclusion of mental health care in UHC. In closing... Some years ago, uh, actually about 20 years ago nearly, um, my colleagues in the department that I now work in produced what I consider the first real scientific report that shifted the discourse of global mental health away from academic conversations to practical ones that embedded mental health within the broader development agenda. 25 years later, we will produce a major new commission in The Lancet which will be published in the fall of this year on global mental health and sustainable development. I want to leave you with a few high-level principles. Our vision now isn't just simply to improve access to care, although that is quite important, but really seeing that only as one of the many tools or pathways we need to actually address the burden of mental and substance use disorders globally. We have five guiding principles. The first, and you heard that from Tom, we don't believe that global mental health is only about the other. We heard the word local is global, and this is so true from all the examples I've given you. No country is truly developed when it comes to mental health. And the best action that you global health students can do is to look in your own backyard and see the disparities that exist there and act there. You don't have to go to Rwanda. You don't have to go to India. You just have to look around you, and you will see global health concerns all around you, especially in the area of mental health. Secondly, that we have to stop categorizing mental health problems into cases and non-cases. This, this may work for TB and HIV. It does not work for mental health problems. We have to deal with dimensions, with continua. We have to deal with the reality that people can move in and out of different states of distress. And a staged model is what we are proposing as a reasonable hybrid between pure dimensions and binary categories for classification that allows space for prevention and treatment and recovery. Third, mental health problems are not like HIV. Once you have a bug, you have the disease. No, these are profound personal narratives. Each and every one of us has a unique life story determined by a very unique set of combinations of the genes we were born with, the life experiences we have, especially during the first two decades of our life, and our biology that will determine our mental health. And this is why even identical twins who share every gene in common often have very different mental health uh, trajectories in their lives. We have to begin to accept that mental health is deeply embedded in the stories of our lives. 
We need to embrace innovations, particularly around technology, because there are new opportunities to leapfrog some of the barriers that this field has experienced over the years. But perhaps most important of all, we've got to make mental health a human rights issue. We cannot allow torture. We cannot allow people to have the death penalty when they are mentally disabled. This is an abomination of the basic values of human life. And we have to really be targeting this issue from a rights-based perspective in the same way that people with HIV-AIDS so successfully transformed the conversation around access to care from a biomedical one to a fundamental human rights issue. The moral imperative then is that in the era of mental health and sustainable development, the word leave no, leave no one behind is actually the, uh, the mantra uh, of the SDGs. And I believe that our society is fundamentally leaving behind the most vulnerable people in all our societies around the world are people with mental health problems, particularly those with serious mental health problems and disabilities. And we really do need to champion the rights for these individuals uh, to receive both care for their problems, their mental health problems, as well as their associated social problems embedded in a universal health coverage and empowerment framework. This is my last slide, and I hope it's a, it's a, a kind of a, a, well, it's certainly the mission that I, when, when I agreed to join Harvard University, uh, I, I thought that in order to really promote this, this broad aspirational agenda, I needed to be in a university that was interdisciplinary beyond the School of Public Health, uh, which is where I had worked for two decades. Coming to UCSD, I can see in a very similar ecosystem here uh, of very diverse disciplines, of very diverse uh, persuasions. And it seems to me that if we have to address this very complex human challenge, it's not a health challenge, it's a human challenge, uh, we're going to have to work across these disciplines. So earlier this month, we launched a major new initiative, a one Harvard initiative called Global Mental Health at Harvard, um, in which almost every school of the university united around promoting an agenda of teaching, of research, and technical support and advocacy uh, in order to try and achieve some of the goals, at least, uh, that we lay out in the forthcoming Lancet Commission on Global Mental Health and Sustainable Development. So uh, I want to thank you all for listening to me patiently, and I'm looking forward now to the comments from the two discussants who follow. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That was truly inspiring and educational. Our commentators today are both distinguished contributors to the field of global mental health who have conducted groundbreaking research on cultural factors affecting mental illness and the social determinants of mental illness. The commentators will speak for 10 minutes each, and then we will have an audience question and answer uh, period. Our first commentator is Janice Jenkins, who is professor of anthropology and psychiatry at UC San Diego and is the director of the Center for Global Mental Health. The center has some important work ongoing on adolescent mental health, among other GMH areas, and has an information table here at Global Health Day for those who would like to learn more. Dr. Jenkins has written on culture and mental health, gender, adolescence, immigration, violence, and re resilience, compellingly examining the extraordinary conditions faced by the mentally ill and the fundamental human processes they share with all of us. 
As a psychological and medical anthropologist, her ethnographic research has been on schizophrenia, depression, and PTSD with Mexican immigrants, Salvadoran, Vietnamese, and Iraqi Kurdish refugees, Puerto Rican migrants, and other Latino, Euro-American, and Native American populations across North America. I welcome to the stage Professor Janice Jenkins. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'd like to begin by expressing my appreciation to all of the organizers for UC Global Health Day, and particularly to Dr. Patel for his incredibly compelling and superb um, case for global mental health. As an anthropologist conducting research on serious mental illness for three decades now, I heartily agree with Dr. Patel, the time is right. Um, I want to speak to models of care and what Dr. Patel referred to as a credibility gap, not only because it's a critically important one, but also to suggest a different way to think about it, which is uh, complementary. I think that the credibility gap might be better conceptualized as a connect or disconnect, with us certainly working toward the former, of interventions in relation to lived experience and cultural validity. Now, what does attention to lived experience and cultural validity entail? I think that this requires uh, of us an emphasis on understanding of illness from multiple perspectives, and that these data are vital for what we can consider evidence-based approaches. If subjective experience and cultural meanings are not central to our evidence base, then I think our point of sale risks going straight into the wind, and we simply can't have that. So when we look to prioritize and to navigate GMH patient needs, desires, social resources, we're hardly without a compass. Um, we are hardly starting from scratch. We have at hand extensive interdisciplinary research in anthropology, psychiatry, global health, and allied fields. We have several decades of empirical studies to support the methodological and theoretical foundations for the primacy of experience. And this argument really was put forth most forcefully by uh, our colleague, Professor Arthur Kleinman, um, and also cultural processes and social structural adversity worldwide. There is a wealth of works, a sampling of which I'm running by here including, um, as Dr. Patel mentioned, networks that have formed uh, for researchers, advocates, persons with fir first-person lived experience to be part of uh, the design and implementation of what we do. Now, from these works, what do we know? We know that contrary to claims that uh, regarding cultural processes and social structural arrangements, 
Neither of these are black boxes about which we know nothing, about which we can do nothing, but both are broadly observable and involve multiple points, complex processes and factors, and points of intersection. And for patient experience, we know that it's shaped very significantly by the structural social arrangements that disproportionately affect the politically disadvantaged. And I have some of the forces of structural violence listed here, um, one of which is incarceration that was illustrated so beautifully and horrifically um, by Dr. Patel, the absolute um, horror of incarceration for those who need help. And culturally, we know that patient experience is shaped in nearly every aspect of mental illness and mental health through empirical evidence um, on several factors listed here. I'm only going to be able to touch on a few of these. Let's take vulnerability factors. Gender, as we know, is a significant factor, as is being a child, child marriage, child soldier, uh, and uh, multiple forms of abuse. Um, Kin conceptions and social response to mental health problems are also very significant. Um, Turns out that the problems that we identify as researchers and clinicians as mental disorders are culturally interpreted in a variety of different ways worldwide. For example, in Latino and Latin American contexts, often problems are conceived as a a nervios-related, and nervios is on a continuum of different kinds of distress that anyone can have, and some people more serious cases. The social response to that may be one of sympathy and tolerance, as opposed to anger and hostility that you might have from a kind of interpretation that is um, based on mental illness conceived as a personality deficit, uh, laziness, not being a productive individual. These kinds of ways in which problems are conceptually, uh, culturally conceptualized and socially responded to have significant um, ways in which they are, they are important for the most significant factor of all, course and outcome, who gets better and who does not. Regarding how culture is central to psychosocial intervention, I agree that there is, is very likely to be of universal appeal and application, psychosocial interventions. But I think that the content and the substance that fills out these frameworks for intervention cannot a priori be presumed to be the same. This is about an empirical determination that we can do with pilot testing and um, going forth with a variety of uh, interventions as we've been talking about. But the recognition of culture is rendered even all the more important for GMH since meeting the human resources gap requires training and deployment of non-professionals in communities to conduct psychosocial research. Inevitably, this involves shared modes of cultural expectation, interaction, and relationships with respect to how interventions are actually carried out. For example, uh, medication. But I want to make the point that recognizing and collaboratively working with 
cultural orientations of multiple stakeholders as a really primary and often unrecognized driver of efficacy and sustainability of our interventions. And taking medication as an example, um, while integrated psychosocial interventions are by far ideal and preferable, the reality right now is that if you're not on the streets or in jail, the, often the only or the primary treatment is medication. And worldwide, when we look, we see that even though these can be very difficult to obtain logistically, people travel really great distances at a lot of expense for families. They do seek medications, and they find them as both useful but also wanting, also limited. Um, this is because taking medication is a complicated matter for the self. It has to do with uh, problems of what medication does and what it doesn't do. Whether you're in rural Oaxaca or in rural Ghana or the United States, among many diverse ethnic groups that we've worked with, people really want cure. They want improvement. They want social functioning. They want work functioning versus symptom um, diminution. They struggle with stigma-related paradoxes, choices, like things like, well, if I, re, re, if I take this medication and I've gotten better, why am I still being stigmatized? Stigma despite recovery as a kind of paradox. Also, as one woman told me, impossible choices of be, um, to be either crazy or fat um, due to side effects. So if culture shapes key domains of patient illness and experience, how do we recognize and understand it? And here I've taken um, an image from a brochure from a conference that I just came from um, in which the elephant in the room is culture, which typically goes unrecognized. So very quickly, what is it and what it's not? It's not a variable. It's not an ethnic racial designation. It's not a place. It's not a people. It's not even a fixed or coherent set of beliefs, values, or behaviors. What it is is an orientation to the world that is actively created and recreated in the process of social interaction. Meanings that are taken for granted, patterning that also exists with individual variation, and above all, it's what we pay attention to and it's what matters. And here I have an image from Arthur Kleinman's book, What Really Matters. So for what really matters for mental health and mental illness, is, it, is there these conditions are very real, important, and recovery is, is possible. Persons with serious mental illness are no less human than other homo sapiens with a full range of human capacities. And the reality is, as Dr. Patel so eloquently put it, and I, again, heartily concur, mental health affects us all, no different than physical, in different ways to different or lesser degrees or periods of time. So I am going to close with Margaret Mead's vision that, from the perspective of anthropology, this demands an open-mindedness in which one must 
look and listen, record in astonishment, and wonder that which one would not have been able to guess. And moving forward, here's to engaged listening, to advance and to grow our global mental health kinship. Toward that end, we have the new center that has been mentioned, launched this year um, at UC San Diego for global mental health, dedicated to research, practice, and advocacy to prioritize mental health for all worldwide. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jen. That was remarkable and a perfect compliment to uh, Vikram's talk and to triangulate those perspectives. Our next commentator is Bruce Link, who is Distinguished Professor of Public Policy and Sociology at UC Riverside and also a member of the UC Global Health Institute Board of Directors. His interests are centered on topics in psychiatric and social epidemiology as they bear on policy issues related to mental health. Bruce has conducted groundbreaking research aimed at understanding the social determinants of mental illness, health disparities by race and ethnicity, and socioeconomic status, the consequences of social stigma for people with mental illnesses. He's also paid close attention to the connection between mental illness and violent behaviors. I'd like to welcome Bruce Link to the stage. Thanks so much, Tom, for that nice introduction, and it's great to be here. Uh, it's really terrific to be a commentator. I hadn't met Vikram until today, uh, yesterday, and it's uh, uh, great to be able to be a commentator for Vikram. Um, and the reason is that I am a big fan. <laughs> and I'm a big fan because of his passion for the content uh, of uh, making mental health really uh, prominent for us. But I also I was asked to comment before coming to the meeting about, uh, about the meeting and about Vikram. And here was my, what I said. Vikram Patel is one of the most consistent and influential advocates for global mental health in the world. We need to listen carefully to him and help push for positive change. And then I saw in his work several essences needed to push for that positive change that I want to bring forward. And they're kind of like abstract essences, but here they come. Creativity, rigor, and heart. Let me start with the heart part. I think you saw that prominently in how he presented this evidence to us. And all of us are here, I think, really, because we see these problems and we really want to do something about them. And there's the heart element in that that we're bringing forward. Um, and then to think about the creativity. This isn't a simple problem. And you've got to figure out how to go to a country and make a manual that the people there can use when there's so few psychiatrists or other mental health professionals in the context. You need to have that creative spark to see how that might be done. And then rigor. And you saw rigor all over the presentation, both in the multiple uh, clinical trials that have been done and the 
development of evidence and then the presentation of that evidence as an argument for how we need to go forward. So I'm going to, from that, I want to have some emphasis on structural issues because this is basically where I come from. I've written about social conditions as fundamental causes of health inequalities. And then I've talked about structural stigma and stigma as a major social determinant of health. And I want to focus this on, on this structural issue a little bit. So here's a, a, a slide that shows Mark Hatzenbiller and myself, and we did a special issue of uh, uh, social science and medicine focused on what we called structural stigma. And this is basically, uh, Mark Hatzenbuehler was a, a scholar in the Health and Society Scholars at Columbia University. And he was sort of uh, my, I was his mentor. But really he was teaching me about the importance of structural issues and what he called structural stigma. And he brought me along in this conference that we organized in this special issue. Um, and we define structural stigma as policies, laws that disadvantage a stigmatized group in marriage, housing, jobs, parental rights, rights of citizenship, and so on. Or attitudinal climates in areas that block people from free access to places and make stigmatized people feel uncomfortable when they are in such places. Now, to give you an example, we don't have enough evidence about structural stigma in health. Uh, but my colleague, Mark Hatzenbuehler, has developed a program of research, and most of the research he's developed has been about the experience of gay and lesbian individuals in the United States. So I want to give an example of, from his work because it sets up the idea that these structural things really can matter a lot for our mental health. And so the idea that he comes with is, well, you know about individual stigma and how we might feel ashamed or something like that inside us. We might try to conceal things or something like that. It also happens that interpersonal stuff happens to us if we're, if, when we're stigmatized. But Mark's idea is that there's structural stigma in the state policies and so on. And this is what he is focused on. And here's a quasi-experimental study that I'll give as an example of this, uh, and whether health problems among lesbian, gay, and bisexual populations increase following increases in structural stigma. And it comes from uh, constitutional amendments banning same-sex marriage in 2004. And you can see there in the United States, the red states, that passed laws banning constitutional amendments, and the blue states uh, that did not. And the more remarkable thing is a study that Mark and others in, in, at Columbia University were involved in, the NISARC, was done before and after the bans. And they included enough gay and lesbian individuals to have a look at what happened to their mental health. And here's a slide showing that. So that you see here wave one before the bands and the light blue bar and the dark blue bar the, the after. Um, and what you see is for those living where the bands occurred, a 36.6% increase and where the bands weren't, uh, a slight decrease. And this was... Um, what you see on the left-hand side there is the same thing you saw before, but this has only happened to people who are uh, lesbian, gay, or bisexual. It didn't happen to heterosexuals, suggesting that it's something targeted towards them. That's an example of 
uh, of, of structural stigma. Now, does this gener generalize? And our history tells us almost certainly yes. Here's a redlining map of Los Angeles in the 1930s at, that set up what we see now, areas that are, are segregated, blocking the accumulation of wealth of people who are disadvantaged by the redlining policy, and creating concentrated disadvantage that percolates down and makes people unhappy and depressed and so on. And of course, it's not just the long arm of history. Here's Brittany Moore, he's a chancellor's fellow at uh, UCR right now, and she has a recent public health commentary on mechanisms by which anti-immigrant uh, stigma exacerbates race and ethnic disparities. Trying to think through, the, how does this happen? We don't have enough evidence about this. And she's going to talk this afternoon. We've got to get more evidence about it, but it makes a lot of logical sense that it's going to matter. So here's the uh, introduction to her uh, commentary. And it starts off with a poem from uh, uh, Robert Frost. Before I built a wall, I'd asked to know what I was walling in or walling out, and to whom I was alike to give offense. And then she has a compelling first paragraph there about how this is going to make people feel and about how it's an expression of institutional racism. And then people who are exposed to that are influenced by it are likely to feel the kinds of despair and, and symptoms that come along with mental illness. And of course, it, it is a global issue of power uh, and policy, uh, the Rohingya, the anti-refugee movements in Europe. And it's not just immigrants, but also multiple groups oppose, uh, exposed to structural stigma. So structural stigma, I'm going to say, is a reliable source of mental suffering. Cutting off those um, macro sources of suffering should be an ambition that we carry forward in our efforts to secure optimal global mental health outcomes. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that if you've been made severely, severely depressed or, or, or anxious by a discrimination that you should Google uh, your local sociologist to ask for help. Instead, we need a two-armed approach to better glo uh, a global infrastructure, to efficiently deliver evidence-based treatments like we heard so much about from Dr. Patel, and to do all we can to choose, close this bigot of suffering that expressions of stigmatization create. And then perhaps, following Vikram, do it with creativity, rigor, and heart. <laughs> 